1: Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, or in the summer a little less frequently, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today I'm joined by Noelani Goodyear Kaopoa, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. In 1999, she co-founded the Halokumana Public Charter School, where she served as a teacher, administrator, and a board member. It is the remarkable story of this school, the challenges and contradictions they faced, the sovereign indigenous pedagogies they developed, the political revitalization they were born of and fostered, that is the subject of her profound new work, The Seeds We Planted, Portraits of a Native Hawaiian Charter School, just released from the University of Minnesota Press in conjunction with First Peoples, New Directions, in Indigenous Studies. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Noelani, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks for being with me.
0: Thanks, Andrew. I'm very happy to be here.
1: I'm honored you could join me today. Uh, We're discussing your new book, The Seeds We Planted, Portraits of a Native Hawaiian Charter School. It's just released from the University of Minnesota Press in conjunction with First Peoples New directions in indigenous studies. One of the reasons I'm, I'm excited you're here for this conversation, uh, I mean, beyond the fact that it's a, it's a quite beautiful book, um, it's also your intimate connection to the story uh, that you tell eloquently. I think oftentimes on this program, we have really wonderful writers who are nonetheless often very distant from what they're writing about, whether because of a, a gap of time or geography Or culture, but this is really your story. It's the story of your colleagues and students and the struggle for uh, Indigenous-centered education in a settler colonial structure. Um, So I'm excited to discuss it. But before we jump into that struggle, I'm I'm hoping you can introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to put this story into a book.
0: Sure. Well, yes, it's definitely a story that I'm Close to that, my family uh, has been close to, and and I think um, indigenous education in many places has been something that um, people have seen as, you know, important work that communities and families uh, need to be at the base of. So it, it makes sense that you know um, you get really interconnected to the work that you're doing. Um, so I. I am Kanaka Maoli, a uh, native Hawaiian, and um, was raised um, in a school system, actually went to private school um, here in Hawaii, but both, both the public and private schools in Hawaii, um, like in many other settler colonial contexts, really marginalized, if pay any attention at all, to indigenous knowledge and indigenous cultural practices and values. And so that was my experience growing up um like like so many people um schooling was was a place that really devalued um in many ways um who we are as indigenous people and the vast and really you know brilliant um, knowledges and technologies that our ancestors developed over um hundreds of generations in direct connection with um, the lands that are part of who we are and so um when I was in just coming out of college actually still in my early twenties um started getting involved in education and it was um something that was a really important thing to me to you know continue to raise up new generations of of young people um, and it actually uh one of the kind of stories that I tell right at the beginning of the book is um this experience of teaching on an applied literacy, an applied English class with a group of Hawaiian students that were part of a bridge program between high school and um, the community college here in in the islands, and just being um, very surprised um, in some ways that none of them had really been exposed to much in terms of Hawaiian literature, either in the Hawaiian language or in English. Um, And These were just brilliant students in so many ways, but they had been really disconnected from this long legacy of um, Hawaiian, both Hawaiian writing for one, and then an even longer legacy of um, Hawaiian knowledge production, you know, and all of the brilliance, as I said, of um, Kanaka Maoli. And that really impacted the way that they saw themselves. As scholars you know and and writers, or not more more appropriately um, that they didn't necessarily see themselves as as people who were producers of knowledge who who could be active engage, um active in uh, in engaging the world in in that way um, and so we started um, kind of thinking about dreaming about what it could be like to create a school. Um, so students weren't just doing this kind of thing, um, engaging with Hawaiian knowledge uh, in a summer program, but that it was actually the foundation of what they were learning. Um, and it was at a time in Hawaii where there were communities all over the islands who were beginning to to do this and um, were really being organized by um, a couple, Ku uh, Kakalao and her husband, and Kakalao. Um, they went throughout the islands and were encouraging people to you know, take this desire and these visions and to create charter schools. Um, and so that's what happened, basically, in, in at the turn of the 21st century, um, this explosion in charter schools that happened across the U.S. Um, in Hawaii, what happened was that the majority, um, uh, just over half of all the schools that were started were started by Native communities. Hmm.
1: So I want to um, I want to start by asking a little bit about the uh, the history of public education in Hawaii. Um, mm-hmm. It's a kind of a surprising story, I think, for um, people who are are used to the narratives of, of, of sort of North America around uh, indigenous people and in education, where the story is often, at least in terms of formal institutional education, is one of uh, imposition. It's part of the colonial process. Um, but you write that that public schools in Hawaii did not always function as part of the settler state. There's a, a very rich history in the 19th century. Um, I'm hoping you can talk a bit about that. I know it's a big question, but um, some of that backstory and, and how uh, the school system ultimately did become folded into the settler colonial project.
0: Sure. So... Similarly, I think the narrative in um, Hawaiian historiography for many years now has been that um, schooling was simply imposed upon Hawaiians, that it was part of the missionizing and colonizing process, like you, like you mentioned, um, but really uh, kind of inspired by some of the recent, more recent work over the last 10, 15, 20 years um, by scholars who have been looking into the huge Hawaiian language archive um, so Noy Noi Silva, and her book, Aloha Be Trade is you know one um, sort of stunning example of that how when you start to look at uh, Hawaiian voices and this archive of Hawaiian language materials, whether it's government documents or um newspapers, that you find a whole different story than if you were just only looking at the the records from that were written from an English and colonial point of view um and so with with Hawai'i, you know, we have a unique history where beginning in the 1840s, um, our leaders formalized um, our government, our centralized government as, as a state, as a nation state, and got um, international recognition from the major powers of the time and began, you know, establishing um, all of the sort of um, Hallmark institutions of the modern nation state, but you know, and this is an independent Hawaii run by, um, Native Hawaiian leaders primarily. Um, and so public schools was a part of that. So the creation of a public school system was under the independent Hawaiian kingdom under um, a constitutional monarchy. And the first heads of school were um, Native Hawaiian scholars. Um, these were scholars who had, had been or, um, educated within um, seminaries that were set up by Protestant missionaries. Um, but, you know, they had taken this education in their own ways. And many Hawaiians um, took up the technologies of print literacy um, and then the, the whole institution of schooling itself to use. For the assertion of our own um, independence and sovereignty, and so the first um, school system, public school system in Hawaii, really was um, native-led, which is um, somewhat unique. It, you know, it's not the only situation where this has happened, um, but but it is different than the sort of narrative of schools were just simply imposed and kids were stolen from their families and. You know, the public schools at that time were um, in some ways like um, the sort of charter school model where they're local community run. Um, The boards were comprised of parents and and teachers who were part of the schools. Um, And so over the next 50 years, um, you know, the white um, planter elite was growing in power economic power, um they were consolidating military power. They were um also beginning to make, you know, certain kinds of um political ties with um the US, which was expanding its own empire. Um, and so they began to sort of shift the balance of power over of control over public education in Hawaii toward the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. Um and then but up until the, let me just say, but up until the 1893, when the um the armed invasion by the U.S. takes place in Hawaii, the majority of teachers in the public school system were still Native Hawaiian, um, and much of the education was still done in the Hawaiian language. Um, so it's really that takeover of of power, um, when the U.S. expands its empire into, um, Hawaii and then of course other parts of the Pacific after 1898. Um, that there's a, a complete shift in a governance over public education.
1: Now, it it sounds like the the present is also very unique in certain ways um, in Hawaii, just on in a, in a larger basis. It's the only state where Indigenous students comprise the largest portion of public school enrollment. Uh, you also point out that it's the most centralized system in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could actually clarify what that means, but also in... in um, and part of that, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, you mentioned this a bit at the outset, but what were the conditions, um, uh, within public education in Hawaii that, uh, really spurred the growth of, uh, your own school and, and all the native charter schools? Sure.
0: Um, yeah, so Hawaii is, uh, for part of that, that the legacy of, um, you know, the colonial legacy in schooling is that there's a very bifurcated system in Hawaii where the difference between public and private schools is very marked. Um, And, that you know, that's true in many places, but um, it's especially sort of marked here. So when you look at who goes to school where, you know, as far as people of different ethnic backgrounds or settlers versus indigenous people, um, you know, that plays out as far as... um, where students are, what the student population is. So, within the the mainstream Department of Education public school system in Hawaii, um, our students, our uh, Native Hawaiian students, make up, as you mentioned, the largest um, ethnic grouping within within the the schools. Even though, as a as a people, we make up about a fifth of the population in Hawaii today. Um, so we're overrepresented as students in the in that system, but we're underrepresented um, at the levels of decision making, governance, administration, in in, you know, in positions of power over that system. Um, and so that those conditions were definitely part of why we began um, the school, and and all of these schools kind of you know came up is that. Um, Oh, so the centralized part of it also um, is that there's only a single board of education in Hawaii. So, on average, in states throughout the U.S., there are over 200 boards of education in each state, and so governance of schooling is, you know, closer to the community level. Um, so you have the case in Hawaii where you have small schools in very rural areas and huge schools on different islands with very different kinds of needs, all governed by the same board. Um, and so this is in many ways antithetical to an Indigenous perspective on um, on knowledge that, you know, knowledge is place-based, it's community-based, that we need to attend to where we are located. Um, and so both in terms of the organization in Hawaii, as well as a larger trend of standardizing education in the U.S., you know, there was um, just no room for um, Indigenous knowledge. Um, And that obviously has a huge impact on Indigenous students. And so, like is the case in many Indigenous communities, um, Native Hawaiian students have, you know, the highest uh, dropout rates or pushout rates you know, highest levels of reporting being um, under the influence of alcohol or drugs in school, getting in fights, all of these kinds of negative indicators, right? And so, um, it's part of a move to, rather than seeing just the deficits, you know, what are the strengths of our communities, our cultures, our histories, and if we um, immerse our students in those strengths, you know, then the whole theory was that they would do better. Um, they would be excited to be in school and would be more successful. Um, and so that's kind of where the, you know, the thrust of these different schools came uh, came from.
1: So when you decided to, um, to go through with this, to create the school, um, you had to take it to the Hawaiian State Board of Education to, I guess, get certified. And I found that a really... Um, I don't know, gripping passage in the introduction to your book when you have to go into what's a rather hostile environment of uh, of administrators, uh, people on the Board of Education who, who don't necessarily share your priorities. You talk about uh, how that presentation was an exercise in delicate re- rhetorical maneuvering. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that day and and how you ultimately fared. I mean, how, how that went and, and the aftermath.
0: Yeah, well, you know, one of the major sort of central tensions that I try to bring up in the book is what does it mean to do indigenous cultural revitalization work, community community revitalization work within the structures of settler state institutions, and you know, we need to do this work. This is for education. This is where our kids are. Um, but at the same time, there are these major limiting factors, not the least of which is that. The majority of people who are in positions of power in those institutions are not indigenous, um, and more importantly, don't necessarily see the value of indigenous knowledge, indigenous communities, um, and so you know that's a battle. I think that many uh, people are familiar with as far as um, this ongoing narrative that you know the knowledges that come from our traditions, our our peoples. Uh, Indigenous peoples all over the world is seen as, you know, sort of anachronistic, irrelevant to the present, right, that we are always being written about or talked about as, you know, sort of of the past. Um, And so part of what we were trying to do, I think, in that day when we went before the Board of Education to argue for this was to, you know, be able to present an argument for why this kind of education is necessary. Um, in a way that was critical of the mainstream um, school system. But yet, you know, they're they're the ones who have power over that system. And so you want to be critical enough so that they can see a need for what you're trying to do without offending them so much that they just cut you off.
1: You talk about one of the... um Central projects as, as re-articulating schooling or to re-articulate schooling. What do you what do you mean mm-hmm. by that?
0: Yeah, so um in this case I'm talking about articulation, um, a meaning of articulation that comes from articulation theory that's elaborated in various cultural studies literature where it's talking about connection and disconnecting and reconnecting, the articulating um it comes from the language of articulating the cars, uh, train cars. And so when you hook them together, you know, you're articulating and then unhook and rehook somewhere else. Um, and so what I'm talking about there is basically, you know, un- disconnecting or at least disrupting uh, the political project of mainstream public schooling, which has been to erase Indigenous presence um, or marginalize it at, at the very least or make it uh, irrelevant, you know, um, and to rearticulate schooling as an institution, as a practice in projects of Indigenous self-determination and survivance and um, revitalization. So it's really a sort of project of... Um, Showing the the value of indigenous knowledge and, and cultural practice um, both for those larger systems and people empowering those systems but also for our own people you know we, we often internalize um, those messages that you know what are um, the traditions that come down from our our elders may not be relevant to today and so there's also the need to um, combat those mes- those kinds of self-defeating and internalized messages within our own communities.
1: It seems like one of the, the sort of answers that you propose, or at least one of the broader terms you put them under is is this idea of sovereign pedagogies, which is another um, term that you introduce, or at least I haven't seen it before. And I'm I'm wondering if you can sort of introduce that concept as well, sovereign pedagogies.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, the, the idea and the the concept and the practice of sovereignty has been so important for many Indigenous nations because our autonomy and independence has been um, suppressed. You know, and so um, that idea of having authority over our own affairs, our lands, over what we get to teach our our children um, has been an important, motivating um, idea for so many aspects of um indigenous movement, social movements. Um and so I was, you know, taking that idea and and, uh, and applying it again to to education and to knowledge building that it's both on the collective and individual level, that when an individual student or a collective community has the sense that I have some autonomy over what it is that I'm learning. You know, I it's self directed. Um then people are more engaged, and I think that's something that you find in a lot of educational literature, you know, sort of just in general, that when a a learner has control um, and real ownership over what it is that they're learning, they, you know, they do better. The learning is deeper. Um, But again, it's also um, signaling that education and schooling in particular um, today, is a national prerogative, you know that it's um, it's a part of the cultural work that is done to maintain a sense of nationhood, whether that's um, for a settler nation like the United States or whether um, it's nations for whom you know our independence and autonomy is not currently recognized. It's it's a, it's an important aspect of maintaining our sense of of who we are. Um, and sovereignty also has this really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It it it's got baggage, you know. Sovereignty, the term has baggage because it comes out of a Western political tradition of what it means to be um, a collective group of of people who is governing, who is self governing, and what that means. And you know, it's tie- very much tied to the nation state in in a Western form. Um, and so I was consciously using that because you know to do indigenous um, education in a school system is to operate within certain kind of limitations um, of what it you know of what education looks like um,
1: there's one other concept um, I'm hoping you can introduce a bit or talk about a little bit and that's that's land-based literacies um, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people wouldn't even be necessarily familiar with the pluralization of literacy. I mean, they they think of literacy as pretty bounded to uh, the ability to read and write uh, in the written word. Um, you not only say there are multiple forms of literacy, but one of the ones that's central to this pedagogical practice of the school is, uh, is land-based. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. Um, so I think there are you know popping up in various kinds of fields and places um ways of pluralizing the term literacy to understand that um what gets counted as as language or as communication is always political in some way that um what what counts as, as you know proper kind of language is um invested in maintaining or disrupting Certain kinds of relations of power. Um, so, anyway, different sorts of literacies, media literacies, for example, you know, people talk about what it means to become um, fluent in how to read and look at different kinds of media other than print. So, film and how to engage critically. Um, one of the things that I was trying to really get at by using that term is that within mainstream education in the US, um, Today, a very particular kind of um, standardized literacy uh, is put forward as the only sort of literacy, you know, um, reading and writing in standard English um, from a certain kind of cultural perspective. And so, uh, the other part of that is... That again, as I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, the standardization of knowledge um, that has in particular been heightened by um, the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001 um, and in Hawaii, the implementation of different kinds of content and performance standards in schooling um, has basically been on based on this idea that you can... You should be able to go to a classroom, whether it's in Iowa or California or Hawaii and be able to learn the exact same thing in all of those places when you're, you know, at the fourth grade level or something. Every fourth grader across the board should be learning the same thing. And I definitely think there's value, you know, in having common things that we learn all together. But um what, I'm try- what I try to get at there is that, you know, really being able to pay attention to the land, the place where you're located is essential to Indigenous knowledge. It's what's enabled our peoples to survive for hundreds of generations. Um, and when we think about how our societies are going to be sustainable in the long run, um, unless we're paying attention to where we are, where the resources are, how they're being utilized, what our relationship is to them, we're not going to be able to sustain um, life and I think this is you know what one of the great um, lessons and sort of brilliance of our of our ancestors was this very close and intimate relationships with the the places where we um, have grown out of.
1: So, Halo Kuimana is a charter school, um, and as you uh, acknowledge it, very rightly so, the charter school movement, uh, at least as it's most commonly known or it's most publicly known, is linked with um, corporate-backed privatization schemes. I mean, it's it's one of those buzzwords that uh, corporate reformers of education uh, use to, to continue their plans. And you you identify that form of charter school movements as a a neo-colonial project. But um, Native Hawaiian community-based charter schools are, of course, uh, anti-colonial in nature. Um, How have you navigated that? How have you um, tried to avoid uh, close association with that other breed of charter schools that's pushing privatization?
0: Yeah, good good question. I I don't think necessarily that um, charter school operators in Hawaii, in Native Hawaiian charter school operators, have always been really cognizant of trying to do that. I mean, I think it's uh, it's been more a process of making alliances um, both among each other across different Hawaiian charter schools and with other Native communities doing education in different ways, not always in charter schools, right? Some are um, tribal-run public schools. Um, So there hasn't necessarily been a conscious effort to distance um, Native Hawaiian charter schools from that more conservative element of um, the U.S. charter school movement. In fact, I think um, I was just working with a group of um, Hawaiian charter school administrators, teacher leaders, this Past semester, and um, there were several that were not even aware that you know this was a major part of the charter school movement on the U.S. continent because it's so different in Hawaii. And um, one of the reasons why I think it's been different in Hawaii is we had a very, um, so from a charter school perspective, a moderate sort of a law. Um, that was in many ways because Hawaii has a strong legacy of um, labor organizing. And so, you know, the trend has always been for unions to really be cautious about charter schools. Um, and so in Hawaii, the law that was passed limited um, charter schools to only 25 at, at first, only 25 schools. There was only a single authorizer, which was the Board of Education, where in other states, there are multiple authorizers. Um, and also that you couldn't have a for-profit entity operating a charter school. And so that's really been the major problem, right, in other places, that you have for-profit entities operating um, schools and and then oftentimes, you know, pushing models that would be um, cheaper as far as operating costs, but not necessarily heightening um, the educational value for, for students and communities. So we've been sort of, um, you know, unique in Hawaii in that, in that respect. Um, and that hasn't always been because of a conscious effort by native Hawaiian charter school operators, um, to create that distance, but more so because of the strong history of labor organizing in the islands, which has been multi-ethnic.
1: I do really, um, I like the idea of a, a sort of corporate school reformer picking up this book and, uh, Really, getting themselves into a big surprise yeah. um, when when they read about it. So, um, I, I, I suspect that will happen, and I, I really like I, 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 I like that so. that will happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know. I, I hope so. If they you know search for the term charter schools and see, right, that? oh, right. great, yeah, this is this is wonderful. Look, it's, yeah.
1: Um, so charter schools, the, the sort of tension around charter schools was one of two significant dangers that you identified. Uh, the other are what you called safety zones. Um, mm-hmm. You write that these are state-enforced spaces for containing potentially threatening indigenous cultural difference um, by allowing just enough culture uh, so it doesn't threaten or undermine a settler colonial relations of power. Uh, how have you played, I mean, how have you seen this play out and how, have you, uh, how, how successful do you think you've been in, in, in navigating that particular danger?
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, this isn't my idea. This is an idea that comes out of the work of um Chanina Lomawaima and mm-hmm. Teresa McCarty. Mm-hmm. And um they talk about, in their history of um, Indian education in the U.S., how, over time, U.S. policy has shifted between, you know, sometimes allowing, sometimes completely disallowing Indigenous languages and then sometimes allowing and actually funding. And so what they, you know, talk about is how, Different cultural practices are at sometimes um, seen as dangerous uh, um, to the settler society, and other times seen as, you know, acceptable. Um, And so, what we're called upon to do is to think about um, in what ways different practices kind of move in and out of that kind of category. Um, In Hawaii, you know, this is a really important idea for us because certain aspects of Hawaiian culture are heavily. coveted by, you know, settler state or corporate um, powers. So, for example, the ways in which um, the hula has been commodified and and sold and images of Hawaii and um, a certain kind of feminized Hawaiian culture. Um, There's a really interesting article that um, educational scholar and theorist Julie Kaomea, who works here at UH in the College of Ed, wrote called A Curriculum of Aloha, where she looked at Hawaiian studies textbooks in the mainstream public system alongside tourist brochures and by juxtaposing these two um, kinds of different printed materials, uh, sees these incredible similarities between the ways that the lands and people of Hawaii are represented. Um, And so that's something, you know, that we definitely have to be... um, Aware of and conscious of that, just being visible doesn't necessarily mean liberating. Um, in fact, it can mean exactly the opposite at times. Um, some of the ways this has kind of played out um, in in the school system and, and the school setting is, you know, so for example, it would be okay to have um, Hawaiian language as uh, as a second language, sort of a elective part of the curriculum, but um, to have it be the basis of the curriculum has been a real uphill battle for the schools, um, not just charter schools, but you know, Hawaiian language immersion schools that preceded um, Hawaiian charter schools. Um, so to, for it to be the foundation, I think, is really where it becomes the problem. If it's just sort of a side Dish, you know, sort of window dressing. Mm. It's not as problematic, but it's when it becomes the foundation that it becomes um, more highly suspect and regulated.
1: Mm. At HKM, is is our most our classes taught in the Hawaiian language?
0: Um, it's a it's a secondary school, so most of the students are coming in from English speaking schools. Right. And so they all take Hawaiian language as part of their regular curriculum every year. Required, so it's required that they take Hawaiian language every year for the duration. Um, but the instruction is bilingual, and it'll depend upon the students and the teachers. You know the extent to which they can do more. Um, so, for example, I talk about in the book um, uh, Lo'i Kalo restoration project. So that's our our wetland taro fields that were, you know, once a really important part of our agricultural technologies in Hawaii, and have been um, being revitalized over the last several years. And so, um, in those kinds of contexts, uh, they'll also not only have sort of classroom language instruction, but um, contexts where students can be using the language and, um, you know, learning the different terms and. I talk about in the book, um, for example, a period where they're only allowed to speak Hawaiian. Um, So it's it's brought in, but, you know, it is a process of um, having to, for most students, introduce Hawaiian as a a second language. English, for the majority of them, is their first language.
1: You actually, um, I'm I'm reminded of... uh the opening of the second chapter, when you talk about students who have come from other schools, um, and you open that chapter with a story about uh, a video project, a senior video project that uh, you worked on with the first graduating class of the school. And you talk about how you, the students and and you went back to their old school um, and and the the sort of very alienating carceral uh, built environment of that old school. You write that... uh, the school had been a place these students tolerated and survived. They saw themselves reflected in the security guards hired to keep them on campus. Um, at the end of that vignette, you talk about how the school that HKM wanted to be a radical departure from the fences, the walls, the bell schedules. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that, particularly that that aspect of the built environment. I see it in, in New York City all the time. It, it, schools are increasingly resembling. Uh, prisons, factory warehouses sometimes they 're genuinely indistinguishable. Um, how have you tried to step away from that very oppressive built environment um, that that was so alienating to these students
0: well I, I think the first part of it is you know having smaller schools um, so that it can you know when you have a huge population so the school that we visited, for example, you know that thousands of kids go to that school. Mm-hmm. Um, that they had come out of. And um, so keeping people sort of in order, um, you know, was really sort of an important part of the management of, of that particular school. Um, so part of it is, you know, having a more, um, a smaller, more community based family sort of level. Everybody knows each other at HCM, everybody knows each other's families. Um, you know, it's a school of just over 100 or so kids 120. Um, that was one part of it, but the other thing was, you know, really seeing our lands as um, not just classrooms, but as sources of learning. So when we started to design the curriculum, we were trying to look at ways to build courses around um, particular places and practices rather than, you know, disciplines um, and sort of silo knowledge in English, social studies, math. Um, and realize that, you know, students actually make better connections when they're seeing how these various kinds of disciplines interact with each other and operate in um, terms of helping one understand and relate to places. And so um, there have been various places over the course of the school's 12-year now operation. um, And one of them is uh, the lo'i that I write about, the, the taro um, field in Manoa Valley. <clears throat> um, another is actually not what we might consider a, a place per se, but you know, from a Hawaiian perspective, um, the wa'a or the canoe is itself uh, a moku, an island. Um, and so that's another chapter that that we write about, or that I write about. Um, you know, the ways that those um, those places have been seen as sites of learning. Um, so students will go out to those, you know, either once or twice a week. Um, and that's helped, you know, give a sense that learning is not just about sitting passively in a classroom, a four-walled classroom, but it's really about taking it beyond um, and seeing our landscape itself as as a teacher.
1: So that... Um... That, that sort of vignette that I, I used to ask you this last question, it begins a chapter about uh, No Child Left Behind, the massive educational reform bill that President George W. Bush signed in 2001. Mm-hmm. You call it a re-assimilating force. Um, what what obstacles did it erect or or entrench when you were still in the early years of, of HKM?
0: Um, well, a number of things. The, the um, requirements for what's considered to be a highly qualified teacher, so, you know, HQT is the sort of buzzword status and that teachers have to be um, not only certified to teach in the level that they're teaching, so like secondary level, but within the particular discipline that they're teaching um, and so this made it really difficult to have an interdisciplinary curriculum because if you have students in multiple um, age groups, let's say you have a ninth and 10th grade class and they're um, doing a, a project-based sort of course that combines both science and um, social studies at, with um, traditional knowledge about vaa with a canoe, um, then you have to have you know, teachers who are certified in those discrete subjects um, and for, for our, you know, cultural practitioners who are masters of knowledge themselves, um, you know, this basically excludes them altogether from having a paid position as a teacher. Um, so in, in this particular case that I write about with, with the va'a with the canoe, you know, we had a teacher who was um, trained and sanctioned to teach by master navigators in both um, Hawaii and Satawal. So, where where the revitalization of Hawaiian voyaging knowledge came from was really making this connection with um, a master navigator uh, from Satawal, Micronesian, um, named Papa Mao Piailug. And so, she studied under. You know, two different uh, navigators um, was sanctioned by them to teach, also had her own advanced degrees from a Western institution in counseling and guidance, Um, but because she wasn't specifically um, certified to teach science, you know, um, she couldn't be a paid teacher. And so, you know, that was a real, um, both a re-assimilation in terms of who can staff, but also In the way knowledge is constructed, how we think about it, um, you know, that, again, it's pushing knowledge back into these silos that, you know, someone who studies science um, isn't necessarily someone who also is um, capable of teaching across disciplines. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just one example. Sure. You know, um, the other obvious one is um, the standardized testing. That students go through, and what that's meant as far as um, determining adequate yearly progress or AYP under No Child Left Behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, you know, um, when there are high stakes tests, and I don't think anyone at HCAM and other Hawaiian charter schools have ever argued that it's not important for students to learn how to. Um, do math in the in the Western sense, or to um, be able to read and write English and perform well on standardized tests. But when those are the tests that become the measuring point for whether a school is considered successful or not, then of course, um, as has been the case for every other school, you know, other things have to fall by the wayside. Other things have to be prioritized, uh, or those things have to be prioritized over things like math and music, um, or being on the canoe, yeah.
1: and and there's there's funding that's tied to those tests, right? I mean, Directly, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah, and it just existence. So not even, um, you know, not even funding uh, or funding, and mm. in addition, just being able to continue operating. Um, and so Halal Kumana did go through a process of restructuring, which I um, talk about in the book, and you know, it was able to get out of restructuring status. Um But not without costs to the way that the curriculum was organized mm-hmm. and staffed,
1: so you have a, a whole chapter or at least a good part of a chapter about um some of the political activism that um Kamana students uh were involved in um or are still involved in. Uh, I thought that was really that was really great i mean i I remember some of my most deeply educational experiences in, in high school were uh, around, uh, protests against the U S invasion of Iraq. And, you know, Mm. those weren't necessarily sanctioned by the school, but they were probably much more educational than a lot of what I was getting in the school. But, um, Mm. it sounds like HKM is a place where students, um, don't feel like they need to shy away from being political. Um, uh, even though, you know, in many other schools, you also make the point, of course, that all schools are inherently political, but, Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering if you could yeah, talk a bit about that dimension of, of the student's life and and what some movements that these students have been involved with.
0: Yeah. So like you said, I, you know, make the argument that all schooling is political, whether people are aware of that or not, that it, you know, schooling is about either reproducing or challenging, um, <clears throat> different relations of power. <clears throat> um, and one of the things that I also try to talk about, um, in the book is that when you're doing indigenous revitalization work within settler state structures, you you have to be consciously rebuilding the indigenous structures that provide health and life and well-being. Otherwise, you'll just be um, limited and pigeonholed as a safety zone. You know, you you won't be actually doing anything that's transformative, and it's it's essential to be transforming. The current reality when indigenous peoples are you know um, facing the kinds of um, violences and inequalities and um, conditions that that we are um, and so you know i I talk about the the voice as one of these kinds of, of structures that you know students um, cultivating their voice being able to to speak to articulate um their uh, their identities, their opinions um, their their political positions is is really crucial to to this whole process and um, it's also been sort of a, a fact of life, you know that um for indigenous people, for Native Hawaiians, for others in other in other contexts just to survive and continue to be who we are often <laughs> involves political struggle, right? Just being able to remain in place and keep, you know, eating the food that we have always eaten has has often required huge political battles. Um, So the students have been involved in a number of different kinds of um, actions over the years. Um, You know, one obvious one that um, the schools would be involved in is fighting for equitable funding. So in, in the case of charter schools in Hawaii, Um, the per-people funding has always been inequitable, Um, so it's been significantly less than the already poor funding for public schools. Um, And so that's been one one battle, you know, sort of keeping our school alive kind of thing. Um, And that's never been something that students have been forced to do, but they are always, you know, exposed to that possibility. Um, have been taken two different kinds of rallies at the state capitol to to meet legislators to watch um, hearings uh to testify if they wanted to um, to perform um, at the legislature um, the other major sort of um, political issues that I talk about is uh the relationship between Panaka, Native Hawaiians, and Haloa, or the taro, the Kalo, who um, is our elder sibling and um, historically the staple food for our people. And so um, this has particularly over the last several years um, been around um, efforts by others to um, patent and or genetically engineer uh, Hawaiian taro. And so students, um, because they have as part of the curriculum, um, been really involved in revitalizing um, taro agriculture, uh, you know, it made, it's made sense to be part of these discussions. And so um, there's one moment in the book where there's a, a student who remembers she's recalling this uh, event where they went to the University of Hawaii's Central Administration Building, Bachman Hall, and it was over this issue of whether scientists at the University of Hawaii could patent three varieties of um, Hawaiian taro. And she talks about how, you know, we came there just to talk to you, just to express, you know, what our feelings are, what we've learned, and she sees them being shut out, you know, with a security guard at the, at the door none of the people in power will even come and talk to them. And that was a powerful moment for her to to see, like, we just came here to talk to you and you completely shut us out. Mm. Um, yeah. So she also talks about how, you know, it was through those kinds of experiences that she learned to find her own voice, you know, that she had been really um, hesitant about speaking up or, or not feeling like her voice was worthy to be heard or she had anything valuable to say, but from those kinds of experiences, you know, really really getting a sense of um, the importance and the power of, of her own voice.
1: The beautiful part of um, being part of a social movement, I think.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: really is. Um, so I've been speaking with Noelane Goodyear Kaupua, author of The Seeds We Planted, Portraits of a Native Hawaiian Charter School. Noilana, before I let you go, uh, I want to ask: what do you what do you think other communities can can take from this, and what uh, what impact do you hope the book will have, particularly?
0: Well, I hope that um, we can continue to make connections across uh, different Indigenous communities. I think one of the things that we've uh, experienced with Halau Kumana is the way that. Um, we learn and are inspired from exchange with indigenous peoples in various places, um, and so I hope that that can really continue so that you know because many of us are numerical minorities in our own locations, the more kind of solidarity we can build um, the more power we have. Um, I hope it will also really make an impact on people who work in mainstream educational systems to see that um These issues are ones that need to be taken on by everyone. They're not just, you know, just for indigenous communities. um, There's huge value in indigenous language revitalization, indigenous um, agricultural revitalization, um, for the sustainability of of all people in our places. Uh, um, And so I hope that the book will also, you know, generate um, even more uh, movement around transforming education.
1: Well, congratulations. It's a really great achievement um, to have this book Thank out. Thank you.
0: And, uh, Thank you very much. I do much. hope it's
1: widely read. Thank you again for joining me.
0: Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it.
1: That was Noelani Goodyear Kaupo, author of The Seeds We Planted, Portraits of a Native Hawaiian Charter School, from the University of Minnesota Press. This is New Books in Native American Studies. You can find us on the web at com, where you can listen to all the past interviews free of charge, or on iTunes, where you can download and subscribe to the podcast. We're also on Facebook. You can leave comments, questions, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.